You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Hey, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9, if you have a Bible and want to turn there. Um, end of Romans 9 and beginning of Romans 10. Um, I'm preaching to the choir a little bit because uh, I think the theme of the passage today is like the theme of Holy Cross Church. Uh, it is that we don't have any righteousness of our own, any uh, thing in ourselves of which to be proud or confident, but that all of our confidence is in Jesus and his mercy for us. So um, if you just remember that and don't listen to the rest, that's okay. All right. But uh, Paul makes a more elaborate argument about it there. One reason it's worth saying often, though, is that um, it feels like there's a factory default setting in our lives that's moralistic, that just looks at the world uh, in terms of us versus them, good people, bad people, uh, giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt, not giving the benefit of the doubt to, the, to other people. And so um, it always feels like there's something in us that gives us a quality that's different than other people have. And that is a moralistic temptation that affected the Jews as they faced the Messiah, and it affects all of us as we face life in the world. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about today, trying to reset our hope on what Jesus has done for us instead of on who we are or what we've done. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that you would uh, come and speak to us and uh, make us open to you and our uh, attitudes and our thoughts. Uh, We're here because we need you and want to know you. And so we pray that you'd come and speak to us through your word. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Read with me, beginning of verse 30 of uh, Romans 9 and then through the fourth verse of the next chapter. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that's by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Well, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Isaiah's prophecy, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, meaning the Jews, is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And this is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us because he loves us. I'm going to use Black Lives Matter as an illustration. And not just because I'm a guest minister, but uh, I'm going to do this at home today, too. Um, I sent a quote about this out to our congregation last night, and within 30 minutes, I got like four hostile emails. And I thought, what did I say? I wasn't trying to pick a fight or anything. But so uh, please be gracious to me if I misspeak. I don't mean to misspeak. Uh, But the reason I want to use the Black Lives Matter issue that's come up is because it's a place of moral certainty in our culture uh, about which people disagree and where you feel a lot of animosity back and forth. 
And I read an interesting article this week by a British uh, journalist named Theo Hobson. He wrote it last month in The Spectator. And his article was entitled, Racism is a Sin and We Are All Sinners. And the point of his article was that the relatively archaic term sin is necessary for us to think well about the issues of racism and what's going on and what hope we have for change and things like that in our cultural divides. And without the category of sin, archaic and religious as it is, uh, that we're handicapped in any of these conversations. And so he makes that point. He says that the reason we need the idea of sin to talk about this well is because um, the movement that you hear described very often is not just about having uh, different or better laws against discrimination racially in the culture, but the conversation now is about attitudes that are embedded pretty deeply in people's hearts as well as in social structures. But he says, if you want to start talking about morality that's embedded deeply in people's hearts and assumptions, um, then you need a category like sin to be able to describe it well, either to understand why it's so persistent or to understand how there's any possibility of having change in attitudes like these. So he's arguing, bring back the word sin, and it'll help us in our conversations about race. Because when you start dealing with attitudes of heart, you're you're inevitably moving over onto religious territory in your conversation. There's a pretty interesting article. Uh, what he talked about, though, is if you don't have a category of sin, then you tend to uh, polarize people into the, the pure and the impure, you know, on different sides. Like, you know, my side is, is of course, you know, reasonable and loyal and courageous, and the other side is, is devious and unreasonable and cruel, right? And so we think of the pure and the impure. Some people who are completely free of any kind of problem with racism and other people who are completely hopelessly wrapped up in it with no hope of change ever. And there's not much gray area in between the two categories. Hobson said the, uh, the religious people are wiser when they talk about this. I don't know what religious people he knows. But he says when we talk about uh, sin, the corollary of that is that we're all sinners. That we're all shot through at the heart level with uh, immorality and brokenness that comes out of our independence from God. You know, the, When we talk about sin, we don't just mean other people. We mean us, and we know it's a deep problem. Right? And we know that our hearts are not pure, even if we're saying something true and righteous about social issues or social behavior. Uh, We speak as sinners to other sinners whenever we speak. And that on some fundamental level, we are like the people on the other side of the protest from us. Uh, We are fellow sinners. We may have different uh, presenting sins in our lives, but we speak as people who are broken ourselves morally, even when we speak to redress injustice in a culture. So sin tells you why racism runs so deep and why you can't just yell it out of people, right? Because it's too deep in us to be rooted out that way. But it also tells us about human nature, that when we speak, even in righteous indignation, we speak as fellow sinners. And those things are helpful. So that hopefully relieves some of the uh, 
massive divide between the pure and the impure. Right? We never speak as the pure. Um, we always speak as the somewhat impure, the pretty impure, as it turns out, even when we're speaking in a righteous cause. So this is a window for us into the subject that Paul's talking about in this passage uh, because it's our own sense of our own righteousness and our own morality and how that plays out in the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we think about other people. And it usually exposes the uh, default moralism that we have in our hearts, that we usually approach the life in moralistic terms, thinking of ourselves as good and other people as bad, and that's not very helpful. Uh, it's really not helpful religiously because when we bring those attitudes into our thinking about God, um, the whole point of Jesus Christ coming and living and dying for us is wrapped up in our need because we're broken and sinful. And the more confident we are of our own sweet, innocent little hearts and our deep goodness, uh, the less we will understand and feel our need for Christ. So that's what Paul's pointing out. He's, he's using the example of the Jews in a long section of three chapters about the Jews' relationship to the Messiah and how and why they missed Jesus when he came for the most part. Um, it's a complicated argument. Uh, reliance on the Torah is not most of our immediate need. <laughs> and so I'm going to talk about how we share the same kind of problems that they have. Uh, but the rest of this chapter is a long explanation by the Apostle Paul about his own countrymen, why they missed the gospel and why they shouldn't have. And uh, a lot of it I don't understand very well. So the good news is that Bruce is here and will handle any questions you have on the subject. But um, the Jews' problems are not peculiar to them. They missed the Messiah for the same reasons that we missed the Messiah. Their mistakes are our mistakes, and it's not too hard to figure that out. But the first thing Paul points out here that we're going to look at is that you can't get a righteousness of your own. You can't get righteousness on your own. You can't make yourself righteous. You aren't righteous. You can't fix yourself. You can't get a righteousness on your own. And he, he contrasts three different times in this short passage a righteousness, a standing, a goodness, an acceptability, presentability that comes as a gift from God by faith versus one that you drum up yourself by being good, uh, thinking good thoughts, having good sentiments, uh, listening to your uh, elementary school teachers who told you that we were all little innocent darlings. Right? You know, Paul says you can't get a righteousness that way. You can only get righteousness as a gift from God through Jesus. And so he contrasts faith in verse, end of verse 30. He says a righteousness that's by faith is what the Gentiles have, but, the, but Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness and didn't succeed in reaching it. They thought the law could give it to them. It didn't. So then in verse 32, they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, uh, so they didn't reach a righteousness. And then in verse 3 of the next chapter, they were ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness. And Paul says that's the, that's the fatal flaw. With all of our life with God is uh, thinking that we earn our standing with Him or that we are somehow deserving or worthy of the standing that we have with him. Um, the gospel comes and says, you have no standing with God by rights. Right? God does not look and see that you have a tender, generous heart that is kind to, 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 to dumb animals and think, oh, they're sweet people. 
you know, God surely likes sweet people, right? Well, no, that turns out not to be the case, that God's standards are much higher than our standards, and he thinks our sweet little innocent hearts are pretty broken and, and pretty dark if you read the scripture and take it seriously. So none of us is a good person. None of us can even atone for the things we've done bad and make ourselves a better person. Uh, we're broken morally and helpless, broken, broken morally, even in our best moments. Even in, our, you know, even in the height of righteous indignation, where we're seeing what other people are doing wrong and feeling scandalized by it, even at those moments, we're people who are desperately needy of the grace of God, who have no standing on our own. And who's going to believe a message like that? Jesus came and said that, and they killed him, right? I mean, how dare you say that I'm just like the repellent others on the other side of the cultural divide? I'm not like them, clearly. They're the problem, I'm not the problem. And for you to come and say that I'm just like them, that I'm as broken morally as they are, how dare you? And how dare you is basically, you know, a paraphrase of give us Barabbas. Uh, how dare you accuse me of being like that and needing grace and needing the death of the Holy Son of God on my behalf? Um, I don't think so. I don't think that's true. For the Jews, they tripped over this uh, using the Torah, the law. You know, God has given us this law that's magnificent, like no other nation has. He's made us a unique people through this law, and it's the best thing about us. We love it. We're proud of it. Uh, we want more of it. And their thought was, God has given us this law to distinguish us, to make us morally superior to the people around us. And our pride in that uh, makes us despise other people. You know, think of the sneer behind the term uncircumcised Philistine, if you know your Old Testament. Uh, you know, it's they're dirty, lesser people than us. So the Jews took the law of God and took it as a point of moral superiority on their own uh, behalf. They said they, were, they pursued a righteousness of their own through the Torah, and they didn't, they didn't make it, right? Because that's not what the Torah was ever for. Now, we usually don't do that. The ceremonial laws of Israel and the kosher laws are not what we base our sense of being a good person on, right? Um, but you may find your own issues in the Bible that you pay close attention to, and you think other people, if they were really Christians, would pay more attention to them too, right? You know, and you think, that makes me, those make me a good person. I would say generally, um, if your issues are human sexuality and what the, law, what the Bible says about the sanctity of marriage, you have a certain view of other people who don't take that as seriously as you do in the Bible. And if your view is social justice is a very clear theme in the Bible, and you see all these Christians who don't seem to care about it at all or are suspicious of the term, and you think, oh, those people are not very good Christians, are they? Right? You know, whatever your issue is that you base your sense of goodness on and that you use to easily judge other people functions like the Torah function for the Jews. Um, gosh, in my neighborhood, it doesn't even have to be religious. The neighborhood app, I don't know, what, neighbor to neighbor, what, next door app, whatever it is, you know, man, if somebody puts the wrong thing in their recycle, that thing blows up. And you'd think, like, there's, you know, there's a child predator in the neighborhood. You know, it's that level of moral indignation about it. And you think, wow, they, they care about their recycling. And, uh, but the easy example is if you look at... Uh, people across protest lines yelling at each other. It was just the strong sense that my position on this issue makes me right and it makes you less than human because you disagree with me. A righteousness of my own. 
And um, that's human nature. We're all prone to that, even if you're not all riled up about the social divides right now. Righteous indignation is a window into your soul. You know, self-congratulation is a window into your soul. Thinking of someone as a repellent other is a window into your soul, and it shows you that the Jews' problem is your problem and my problem, right? We want a righteousness of our own. We think it's available to us, but it's not. It makes us moralists, and when you become a moralist and you become self-congratulatory, uh, you, it always makes you dishonest because you have to, you have to curate your image about what you tell yourself and what you tell other people about what a good person you are. And you have to shine a light on you know, things that you're good at and make sure the light doesn't shine on the things you're not good at uh, because you're trying to present an image of being one of the pure people as opposed to one of the impure people. And that always makes you lie to yourself and other people. And it also makes you superficial because the only thing that can make you feel really righteous is some keepable law. You know, um, I've got the right political position. Congratulations, how hard is that to do? I mean, voting for somebody doesn't take any moral effort, right? But we can say I'm a good person because I have this political position uh, because that's easy. If you want to feel righteous before God and you look at his law, what does he say? You have to love your neighbor as yourself from your whole heart all the time, and you have to love God with your whole being all the time. You have to consider your neighbor better than yourself, even the one you disagree with on the other side of the, of the picket line. Nobody, nobody uh, looks at that law and says, I'm pure and you're not. Anybody that looks at that law says, that's crazy, nobody could ever be that good, which is the right conclusion. Right? One person could be that good, Jesus, but not you. And the only chance you have for righteousness is in him, not in what you can produce yourself. So, making the same mistakes the Jews make, we do what they did. We stumble over Jesus. Isaiah says that the Messiah is going to be a stumbling block. Uh, I'm laying in Zion, verse 33, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And of course that stumbling is, Jesus came and said, hey, you people over here in the pure camp, you're not pure. And you know what? These prostitutes and thieves and tax collectors, they're entering heaven before you. And these people said, give us Barabbas, right? We are not taking that from you. Nobody can say that to me. They wanted a righteousness of their own, and so they missed their Messiah. When we seek a righteous, righteousness of our own, we act like Jesus died for nothing because we think I'm a good person and I'm an improvable person. So what's the need of Jesus, the Holy Son of God, dying in my place? I don't need that because I'm a good person. Right? So he's a stumbling block for inveterate moralists like us and like the Jews. Um, but if you can't get a righteousness of your own, the good news is you can get righteousness from Jesus Christ as a gift from God. You can get a righteousness from Jesus Christ. And this is the uh, pivotal verse in uh, verse 4 of chapter 10. It says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And some people have misread that to say, the Old Testament doesn't matter because Jesus has come. And that's not what Paul is saying there at all. He quotes the Old Testament a thousand times in this chapter. Uh, he's not down on the Old Testament. 
the word end there is telos. It's a goal, right? The point of the law is Christ. Christ is the, that to which the law always pointed and its trajectory was always moving toward him. The whole point of the Old Testament and God's dealing with Israel was anticipatory of Jesus and all moving toward him and what he was going to do as the, as the promised Messiah when he came, right? So Christ is the point of the law, and if you miss that, you're going to miss what the law is about. I mean, the whole Old Testament story, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to fix my rebellious world through your family. Through your family, all the nations on earth are going to be blessed. Um, I'm going to fix the world through your descendants and through your descendant, as Paul points out in one passage. So then they go through the Exodus. They're enslaved in Egypt. God brings them out, and it's the big picture of his redemption, out of the house of slavery and bondage. Just We're brought out of uh, our bondage to sin by Jesus Christ. The Exodus anticipating what Jesus was going to do. Then the kingdom in the promised land, where they had a few good days at least, You know, where we anticipate there's going to be a real king, who can really reign in righteousness and bring shalom to the world. And then the exile, you know, where we find ourselves wandering in the wilderness again because of rebellion, and we're led out of exile by Jesus. But all of, all of these things are anticipatory uh, toward the Messiah coming because uh, they were all partial. You know, there was never a super great glory day uh, in Israel, a little while when David was there, but not that much. And it's also the reason you don't see any heroes in the Old Testament. You know, everybody's tainted in the Old Testament because the point is anticipation. Like, well, there's a great king, Ugh, not that great a king. There's a great prophet, mm, not so much. But a great king and prophet's coming. And all these things point to that. Christ is the telos of the law. But if you try to read the Bible, Old or New Testament really, outside of the context of it all being about Jesus Christ, you mess it up. Even if you say true things about it, you get them out of context, you mess them up. So Paul says, I bear witness, my countrymen, the other Jews, are, they're zealous for God, and they're sincere, and they're devout, but they're missing the point, that Christ is the point of the law, and they don't see that. So they're trying to read the law without reference to Jesus. They're trying to understand the Old Testament without reference to the coming Messiah, and so they miss the point of it. So he's not saying that they're stupid and can't read the Ten Commandments. Like, when the Jews who were rejecting the Messiah read the Ten Commandments, and they read the Sixth Commandment that said, do not murder, they didn't draw a wrong conclusion about that. They thought, hmm, it looks to me like I shouldn't murder. <laughs> and they're right, isn't it? When they looked at the law against theft, the Eighth Commandment, and concluded, maybe I shouldn't steal, they're right. They're not misconstruing the Bible, are they? What they're missing, though, is the deep demand of God's law and the context of His law, which is not only to describe what a righteous life looks like, but to point out to all of us that we can't meet its standard, that we can't keep that law, that a law that says don't bear false witness doesn't just mean I don't commit perjury in court. It means that I have to protect my neighbor's reputation with the same zeal that I protect my reputation. And that'll be a good day when it ever happens, right? I mean, God's law points us to our need of mercy and forgiveness because we aren't able to keep His law. And all the sacrificial system was testament to that, right? We're not okay. 
before God. That's why if you want to be right with God, Paul says later in this chapter, he says, don't keep the law more assiduously, but confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you'll be saved. Um, because the law is not a path to you becoming righteous. It won't work. It didn't work for people who are more diligent about it than you are. But we can do this too, you know. Say true things about the Bible outside the context of Jesus. Like use the Bible to derive a code of ethics. Um, Use the Bible to get tips for successful and happy living. And say things that are technically true from the Bible, but not related to the whole point of the law, which is to drive us to Christ, to see Him as the telus of the law. And when we do that, we make something out of the Bible that is uh, more like a righteousness of our own than a righteousness by faith. So you may read the Bible and say social justice seems super important here. Think you can make that case from the Bible? Pretty easily, right? The prophets are all about not oppressing the poor. Um, But if you talk about social justice uh, without its context of our need of Christ and what causes oppression being very deep inside of us, needing a change that we can't produce in ourselves, um, then you're going to misconstrue it and probably flatter yourself for the ways that you happen to do okay with social justice and demonize people who don't do as well as you do. But you're going to miss the point of what the prophets say about social justice. Or if you talk about the sanctity of marriage and human sexuality, uh, but you just pull it out to say, this is the way God made it, and you all need to comply, and you're not doing it right, well, you're going to miss the point of the law, which says every one of us has massive personal issues with the seventh commandment, and we're all sexually a mess. And God's law comes and exposes us, not just other people, and shows us that we need a Savior like Jesus or we're hopeless. So the law has to be put in context of Christ. He's the point of it. He's the telus of the law. And the Jews wanted to have it as a thing by itself and use it to make them good. And that didn't work. It doesn't work for us either. Law can't make you righteous. The law can't make your neighbor righteous. The law can't make your country righteous. The law can't do that. Only Jesus Christ can make us righteous as a gift. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died and has granted us, as an undeserved gift, a standing before him, righteousness and innocence and forgiveness in his eyes. And that's the Christian hope. It makes us turn away from an attempt to try to build righteousness on our own. Now, when I was thinking about the Black Lives Movement uh, example with this, I was thinking about a church worship service. And what a crazy experience we have in our culture with this church worship service. Because you have people uh, walking in, and about the first thing they do when they get here is admit their own brokenness. That uh, whether you're uh, an agitator or you feel accused by the Black Lives Movement, either way, we walk in and say, I'm a broken, sinful person. My heart's full of sin. My heart's full of oppression. I use power terribly. I don't want to be racist anymore. Um, I need your help, Jesus. I don't want to be self-righteous anymore. I need your help, Jesus. People from across the political spectrum come in, get down, metaphorically, because we're Presbyterians, on our knees, and say, and say, I am a broken mess. And then we hear the gospel preached 
that says no matter how broken you are and how much of a mess you are, there's hope for you to be forgiven and there's hope for you to be changed. So that uh, people whose hearts are broken because of racial injustice in our country can look and say, you know what? Here's real hope of change that I can never get by shouting at people. Um, People are being pointed to Jesus who can really change bigots' hearts. Like he's been changing mine for a long time, right? Has a long way to go, but, but boy, there's a lot more hope in me coming face-to-face with Jesus and dealing with my bigotry than there is with me getting yelled at about it, you know? And so it's, it's hopeful. It's encouraging. And then after we hear the gospel that says we all need Jesus, but we all have Jesus, then we get up red and blue and purple all together and take communion together and say, you know what, what holds us together, our hope in Jesus Christ is way more important than what drives us apart. And after you have that experience, then you're a part of a community that maybe is likely to listen to each other instead of just demonizing each other, Uh, maybe willing to be corrected since you've already been humiliated like crazy by becoming a Christian, (laughs) you know. Then maybe you can listen to somebody else who's saying that you're wrong and actually hear them. Um, maybe you'll be a little less uh, vulnerable to people who are pandering to you politically and demonizing people. Uh, maybe you'll have a little more resistance to that because you'll be people who recognize yourself in the repellent other and have hope for the repellent other just like you have hope for yourself because Jesus can change sinners like us. That would be pretty sweet, right? It already is pretty sweet here. And it could get better. Don't you think, I mean, nobody knows we're here (laughs) in Marana. But if people really figured out what was going on here, they'd be blown away. I mean, you don't see this anywhere in our culture. And it's beautiful. It makes you love Jesus more to see it, right? Uh, Our righteousness is a gift. It's not something we earn. It comes to us from Jesus. Horatius Boner had a hymn that said, uh, Upon a life I did not live... Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death. On this I stake my whole eternity. That's our hope.